Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And I want to start out by reminding you that there are abundant resources on wealthformula.com, and you should definitely go check those out if you have a chance. Uh, And make sure, by the way, to download my best-selling book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, I also want to remind you that there is a course and there is a community and there is a forum and all of these things. It's called Your Roadmap to Real Wealth. And it starts with the basis of a course with the likes of, you know, Tom Wheelwright, Ken McElroy, and uh, let's who else? Dean Graziosi, and, um, you know, a bunch of really smart people, the real estate guys, et cetera, me, Christian Allen. And That is all the basis of what we call the Wealth Formula Network. It's sort of what gets you caught up in this world of of investing talk. And then we have a forum and private community that all feeds uh, from that course. You can find out all about this at wealthformularoadmap.com. The community is really, really strong. It's really good. We have these biweekly mastermind calls on top of it, which have been really, really uh, outstanding. I think most people are uh, pretty thrilled about you know being able to communicate with one another and and, and actually have people who want to listen to what they are interested in. So that's a hard. That's not an easy thing, right? Uh, not many of your neighbors really want to talk about this stuff. Certainly, that used to be the case for me. So anyway, uh, I will uh, I will also point out that there is another podcast. Hopefully, you're started listening to it. It's uh, called. Uh, Consensus Network. Uh, The explanation on that title is a little bit long-winded, so I won't go there right now. But Consensus Network, and the website is consensusnetwork.io. Check that out. We've got some phenomenal guests coming up, uh, including uh, Tika Tawari. We've got... um, uh, we've got we've got some people about the history of money and Bitcoin and all this stuff. It's going to be really neat, so go ahead and check that out as well. Now, as far as today's show, let me just say that I think it's amazing how we learn, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing if you think about it. And, you know, I watch my little girls, um, you know, I have three little girls, and I realize how much we as adults, um, take for granted when it comes to everyday things. Uh, my, my three-year-old does not know how to tie her shoes yet. In fact, uh, she puts her shoes on the wrong feet, uh, about 50% of the time. So, you know, at least she's consistent. Uh, last weekend, my nine-year-old was blown away by the concept of compounding interest. When I asked her to figure out how much money she would make in four weeks, if I paid her a penny, today and doubled it every day for 28 days. In fact, I gave her a choice of uh, of that or $5,000. Which one would she prefer to have? Anyway, she was blown away by the fact that in four weeks she was a multimillionaire. And that was, uh, you know, for most, ad- I should point out that most adults would be blown away by that concept of compounding interest as well. Um, but to me and probably to you, if you are fairly sophisticated in the world of, of investing, that concept of compounding interest is uh, is not shocking. It's something that we know to be true. What we also know to be true is that getting 100% um, per day 
is or is is not is not something that's realistic and um in fact we know that compounding interest for the most part also has this problem when new markets get killed by 20 or 30 percent etc tying surgical knots another brainless activity for this former brain surgery resident but you know what i have no idea and i'm ashamed to admit this but i have no idea how to change my car's oil uh and i know you're like what i mean what what kind of loser are you but you know uh, people find that comically easy i've just never been taught you know my dad is uh still is but he's always been sort of uh, you know, kind of a white collar guy. And, you know, we just never did anything. The first time I learned to use a drill was by drilling through somebody's skull on the operating room table, believe it or not. It's true. Um, but so anyway, over the years, I've come to believe um, that most everyone can learn just about anything. And some of us might have shorter learning curves for certain things and get labeled as quote smart unquote in school but that doesn't really equate to mastery which can only really be achieved through uh, repeated practice and I truly believe that I mean there's lots of things that um, in my life where I was not the guy who picked up on it the quickest but I became one of the best over a period of time by sheer grit not by intelligence per se but sheer grit now, I remember, uh, you know, my first day as a surgical resident, everything was foreign. I couldn't operate to save my life. I didn't know what the words were. I didn't even know what the anatomy I was looking at was. And then a few years later, I woke up and I was operating on people on my own. People have stories like this all the time, right? I mean, think about what you do for a living and the complexity and involved in that and how you have turned it into something that is second nature. Now, money talk, uh, investing, et cetera, is no different. And I'm, I don't claim to know it all, but I know a fair amount and I feel confident in this world. It's just a different language, right? The more you hear it, the more you eventually just know what's going on. And it's not brain surgery. <laughs> you know, they say that, but it, the reality is, uh, anything is, anything is pretty much just brain surgery, right? I mean, you get a, you, everything needs to be learned and you master it. But um, you got to start somewhere, and that's one of the reasons that I think it's really important to listen to shows like mine and others and read a lot, which I think is important as well. Um, and in the spirit of that, uh, we're going to take a little step back today on Wealth Formula Podcast uh, with another episode of Ask Buck. So when we come back, we'll begin that question and answer. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Now, uh, so we, we decided to do, as I mentioned uh, in the introduction, we're going to an Ask Buck show. And, and what one of the reasons for this is that uh, Stephen uh, Honickman is now part of the team. He's new. Uh, he's been he's he's been in on the show before. He was a guest in um, talking about solar panels and that sort of thing. But Stephen is now part of the Wealth Formula team and is part of that. Uh, he has been sort of catching up on the types of things that we do. And so I wanted, I thought it was a good idea to include him in the Ask Buck series here. 
I know we had one fairly recently, but we had like some questions come up. So I figured, why not? Let's do it and get Stephen caught up in the process as well. So, uh, Stephen, you ready? I'm ready. All right. Learning by doing. So let's see. Um, I'm going to go to the first question here. They're not in the order necessarily, any kind of order. I don't even know what the questions are right now. So this is from Derek. Here we go. Hey, Buck. My name's Derek Lane. I just wanted to follow up with a question I had from the last Ask Buck podcast. You talked about preparing for the next financial downturn and that it would be good to be in things that cash flow with favorable loan terms. You specifically talked about being careful of loan covenants with a commercial property and that if the value of a property drops, you may not have as much access to credit with the bank because it may only give you 70% loan to value instead of 80% uh, as an example. Uh, Now I've only been involved with residential real estate and to me, it's pretty cut and dry. You get a loan, buy a property. Uh, loan terms are locked in, but I'm not familiar with commercial deals. But the way you talked, it sounded like the bank doesn't distribute all the loan proceeds up front and that the loan terms can change over the course of owning the commercial property based on the appraised value. So I was wondering if you could just dig into that a little deeper and clarify a little more. Uh, that'd be great. Thanks. Great. Well, good question. This is something I think um, that a lot of people don't really know, which I think is the real the re- what is the real danger of a of of an economic downturn uh, when it comes to commercial real estate. So most people uh, who are dealing with single family houses, duplexes, triplexes, etc., this really is not an issue for you. But because what happens there is what you said, Derek. You basically you get a loan. Your cash flowing, there's a downturn. You don't have to worry about it. Your ca- you know, you're still cash flow because you don't really care what the value of your property is, right? Because you're not trying to make money on capital gains. You're just trying to get cash flow, and that's fine. That's the way it works. If you've got you know your typical smaller residential loan, the challenge is where you get into the larger assets, and say the ones that are using uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac uh, debt. Because what happens with those kinds of loans frequent, frequently, and even with loans that are maybe smaller banks, you just have to check every individual loan document for this, is that it works the same way to start, which is, okay, you get, you know, you're going to get 80%, so you're going to get 80%, or you're going to get 70%, whatever you're going to get loan-wise, and the rest is a down payment. That, that's, that part's the same. Right, that doesn't change. The big difference is is that in some of in some commercial loans, that you get uh, that number, whether it's you know eighty percent or seventy percent, what we call loan to value. That is a covenant in the loan. And what does that mean? Uh, loan covenant means that it's it's a promise. You can't break that promise to the bank. So. Let's say, for example, you have a, a building that you bought for, uh, you know, and, and it had, say it was producing a million dollars per year in net operating income, round numbers, and that came back at a, you know, that was with a cap rate of six and um, uh, at a cap rate of six. And, um, you know, that that was where you purchased it. Right, so you bought a cap rate six, and you're on a net operating income of a million dollars. And the bank saw that, and they, based on those numbers, gave you eighty percent loan to value. the The tricky thing becomes that that cap rate, as you know, can compress or decompress. Right, the cap rate can decompress in this kind of environment. That's what you worry about the cap rate decompressing, and therefore the value of the property drops. Even though your cash flow may not have changed at all, the value of your property drops. Now, in uh, so this is more, again, more applicable to commercial loans. But say now 18 months later, which is often the case, this is what happens, there's an appraisal on that property. 
and you're just humming along, you're cash flowing, you don't think anything of it. And the bank does an appraisal and they come back and say, well, yeah, you still got a million dollars of, of uh, net operating income. That's fine. I know you're cash flowing. But guess what? The cap rate just went up. And according to the cap rate, now your property is not worth as much, right? It's not, it doesn't have the same value that you bought it for. And we're only giving you 80%. We're not giving you more than 80%. You're at 85% right now. And you're at 85%. So either you're going to give us 5% more, a capital call, or you're going to give us, you know, or you're defaulting on your, your covenant and you're going to lose the building. Now, that seems unlikely, right? But it's not. In fact, if you look at what happened in 2008, this was frequent. This happened all the time. In fact, I remember a conversation I had with Robert Kiyosaki about this. And one of his properties, he got a call from the bank, and then he, he was making thousands of dollars per month on this, this property. He got a call from the bank, and he, he was like, why are you calling me when I'm cash flowing like crazy? I mean, there's no problem with this building. Well, we just appraised the building. It's not worth as much as as uh, it used to be. And, and, and now our debt, now we've got too much debt. Hopefully that makes sense. It's the value of the building that changed. With the value of the building changing, all of a sudden you have more. If, if the value of the building goes down, for example, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the amount of leverage you have on that building went up and it violates a covenant, and that's where the risk is. Um, so again, this is usually not applicable to smaller loans. Like, you know, if you buy a single family home, 30 year mortgage, you know, you're not going to keep doing a refi. No one's going to, no, no one's, or no one's going to keep doing an appraisal on that house, or maybe it's a duplex, probably up to four units and those kinds of mortgages. Generally, that's not going to happen, but anything in the larger stuff, it's going to happen. And right now I should also point out the market is ripe for this. And there is a real danger. There is a lot of what I would call amateur syndicators out there that are taking 80% LTV, 80% loan to value, you know, raising a lot of money with a, a with a lot of a lot of inexperienced capital. And they would be fine if they were driving net operating income up, but they're not doing a whole lot with the property. And if they're not driving net operating income up and cap rates decompress, then there's going to be violations of um, of covenants and there will be capital calls. There will be people losing their property. Mark my words. Stephen, do you have any questions on that? Um, I was going to ask you to just sort of think through the reason behind it, because I think it makes a lot of sense if you understand that the banks themselves aren't making up these rules. They're regulated. And it's the regulators who say you have to maintain a certain... Uh, a maximum amount of leverage that you've put out on these properties. And that's actually what caused the collapse in 2008. Yeah. was It wasn't that the, the properties weren't performing. It was that the regulators came in and said, you've you got a bunch of leverage. Notes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, uh, and, and that's really important. That's really important. You don't have to be upside down in cash flow to lose a property. Um, you know, one of the appeals of uh, the main multifamily group that I've been working with, for those of you in the Investor Club know this, is that the loan covenants that they're working on are for a hundred percent loan to value? In other words, it's you. They they can go up to a hundred percent. They never do. They're at yeah. 73 percent. But the covenants at a hundred percent, which means they've got a nice buffer. They have a they have a they have very healthy infinite buffer. buffer basically. But that's that's a big deal. And for those of you out there doing syndications at eighty percent LTV and not working like hell to drive up that income, you better be careful because that is something that could come back and haunt you. Um, let's see. Let's go to the next question. Hopefully that answered it. If it didn't, let me know. And, and to a certain extent, it is an argument for small times, you know, smaller investors right now, you know, to stick to high quality, smaller assets. I mean, I'm not big into single family homes and duplexes and stuff like that, but but I think if you're not going to invest with, you know, if you can't find a syndicator where you can find that kind of buffer on the leverage, then it, it might be, you know, it, it might be a better, safer route for you. 
Next question here from Parker Ashley. And by the way, I know, Stephen, you have questions. If you have questions that are related to any of these, please, uh, you know, interject. So, Sure. Hello, Dr. Joffrey. My name is Parker Ashley from San Francisco. Hi, I messaged you on LinkedIn uh, a few months back in which you responded uh, to pose my question here on SpeakPipe on WealthFormula.com. So, uh, you know, your journey inspires me. Um, I, I was accepted into medical school a few, few years ago, but um, a few injuries had led me to reconsider. And kind of during that journey, I felt the draw to learn about and start business, uh, find my own path to wealth creation. Um, you know, I found your podcast a few years ago after hearing you on the Bigger Pockets podcast, and uh, I, I had a question from that Bigger Pockets podcast that I wanted to pose. Um, you, you first mentioned, uh, or you mentioned that your first multifamily property not succeeding because you only looked at the numbers. Outside of not getting the proper management in place, what specifically did you mean by that, or, or was that it? And if so, could you kind of dig in a little bit further? Um, another question I wanted to pose to you kind of after hearing some of the uh, information on your podcast was regarding life settlement investments. Uh, what specifically are there any are there any channels or vehicles in which you prefer to choose to make those investments, uh, such as uh, a fund, or how do you go about getting into that specific um, investment vehicle? Um, your thoughts on that would be great because I'm having trouble kind of determining the best route uh, forward with uh, life settlement type investments. Anyway, thank you for taking the time uh, to answer my questions. Hope to hear the response in the podcast um, and keep doing what you're doing. Really appreciate it. All right. Let's see. What what was the first question? First question was, how would you characterize the actual reason your first multifamily oh, yeah, property yeah, failed? That's right. that's right. That's right. I have like super short-term attention here. So um, so that's a good question, Parker. Um, the, 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 first, the first property, you know, I described this um, elsewhere, I think in this podcast at times. You know, I got super excited. I finished my training and and I'd read Kiyosaki's book in Cashflow Quadrant, and I had that purple book glow about me. I had the purple glow. A lot of people know what I'm talking about. All of a sudden you think, I know something you don't, and you want to tell everybody, right? <laughs> so that was me. Uh, then I picked up Kenny McElroy's books, ABC's The Real Estate, and then Advanced, uh, I don't know, I can't remember what the second one's called, but it was Advanced Books. Really. Anyway, Kenny's a super smart guy, great guy. He's been on our show, um, you know, just a really quality uh, person. And uh, his book is extremely well written, and it really goes through the numbers, right? If you didn't know what I was talking about earlier with regard to cap rates, with regard to loan-to-value, all these things in terms of real estate, very easy thing to do is just pick up Ken's books, probably the best books you'll ever read on the topic, pretty much all you'll need for the numbers, so to speak. Now, what I meant by, you know, I, by doing a lot of the things wrong, so uh, the steps I took for that property, first of all, I, I'll tell you, I went to, the first thing I did is I didn't know where to look for a property, so I went to LoopNet. Usually that's a bad idea. Yeah, LoopNet, for those of you who are not familiar, is is has a nickname and it's the place. It's called the place where deals go to die. Okay, that's typically what it is. So, I don't. It's sort of called DupeNet. Well, it could be DupeNet too. I haven't heard that one, but it's certainly the place that deals go to die. So usually you're not going to end up with great deals on LoopNet. So the next thing I did is I was on LoopNet, and of course, if you just do the math, what makes sense to search by? You have these different categories to search by. I searched by highest cap rate. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're if you just doing math, what do you care about? You care about cap rates, right? So I picked up some properties on there, and then I said, well, gosh, I should probably get my um, uh, a broker involved here so I can go look at those. So uh, at the time, I didn't know any uh, real estate commercial brokers, but I had just picked up a $2 million house in the, in the North Shore for myself. And, uh, and so I thought, well, hey, I'll, I'll just ask this guy, this you know, guy who deals with luxury property, I'll have him help me. And it didn't occur to me that, well, this property was a C-class uh, or you know, probably C-minus. It was more D-class, C-minus D class uh, property in the south side of Chicago, that this guy would have any clue what he's doing. 
um, to guide me in any sort of way. Well, so that was another bad play because, you know, you need a team when you look for these types of properties. Uh, we didn't we didn't really know the area very well. Again, I was focused very much on the numbers. Finally, uh, the way that ended, and I won't go into too much detail because I think it, it gives it gets a little convoluted. But I bought the building without even thinking about management, uh, and then at the closing, they got, somebody asked, uh, "So who's managing this building?" And I, well, actually, hadn't really thought that. <laughs> so that's pretty stupid, right? But that's just the truth. So at the on that very moment, I said, well, "Whoever's managing it now, I'll just give it to them." That not realizing part of the problem uh, that I would be having is the fact that the property manager was owned, the property management company was owned by the seller himself. And then precipitously, af- well, after the, after a, you know, closing rents, uh, they're paying, paying tenants money of any kind precipitously dropped off. And although it was very difficult, the forensics on this were too difficult for me to make a big case for it. But it was pretty clear that what was happening was that this guy who was sold me the building owned a bunch of buildings in the area, and that he, you know, he was basically, diff, you know, the, cooking the books, right? So this is a building you want to get rid of. You can make up ones that you that you didn't want to get rid of, make them look bad for a while, push money into the books of this one throw in mystery people who aren't paying their rent for physical occupancy. Um, and then the next thing you know, you've got a building that looks really great on paper. Well, that's what I bought. And then uh, it's it's a complicated story with a lot of lessons. But in short, that's what happens when all you do is look at the math. So if I the way I do anything right now is, is all you know. Uh, if you follow me at all after you know a decade of this stuff, is I always go in with team first. I always go in with, you know, I go in with uh, knowing everybody involved. Um, you know, I'm not going to look at the deal unless I have a very trusted broker. I'm not going to, at this point, I only really work with operators um, and operators who have stellar track records and who are recommended by people I know, like, and trust. And I know, like, and trust. Now, it, it, for me, of the due diligence on a building on an asset to acquire now is, has nothing to do with the numbers, the numbers. That's easy. It works. It doesn't work. It's that simple. So hopefully that answers that question. Steven, does that answer the question? I think it knocked it out of the park. Okay. The the point just to take it away is like the numbers can be whatever the owner wants them to be because we know how people push numbers around. Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, you, I can sell you anything if all you're looking at is an Excel sheet. But you know? the smart buyer would say, great, numbers, they look fine. Now let's actually look under the kimono and see what's going well, actually, on. Actually, the other way around. Um, I think I think you have to look at everything else around before you look at the numbers. Uh, and, 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 that, and, and to me, that's critically important. That's a big part of my investing philosophy. And I will add that since I have taken that approach, I, I knock on wood on this desk in front of me, have never lost money on a real estate deal. Um, and by the way, se- selling uh, one of them in a week closing that I bought three years ago at a 500% return. Nice. So I guess the, the question before we move on to the second one is, is that lesson that you just recounted covered in Robert's book? In Cut no, book? no, no, not really. And, and, and that's where I think that, you know, that's where Wealth Formula podcast and my course um, and these things kind of come in. Because I think what, what Robert's genius is, what Robert Kiyosaki's genius is, and, what, and, and Ken McElroy and all of them is, but particularly Robert's, is, is creating a framework mm-hmm. of of investing, a framework for looking at entrepreneurship and your place in this world that people like me uh, who never even, you know, contemplated this idea of becoming an entrepreneur that never even crossed my mind. I didn't even, you know, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I don't know, doctor, um, you know, it's like, it, no matter what I said, I was working for someone else. It was, it was fine. And, and there's nothing wrong with working at anybody else. With a, with the, you know for anybody else, my point being that he created a framework 
and a framework that is real that exists that but for most people who live in uh in a in a culture that is uh driven by uh, conventional wisdom and you know uh, common a, sense that isn't it, common or an educational system that was created during the industrial revolution wrong paradigm right um that that's the big deal uh, nuts and bolts and real world experience that is stuff that Robert doesn't write about very much. Um, and, you know, I, I think he, but he certainly does his part. I think, I think he's single-handedly probably created more millionaires than any, uh, any single person on earth ever has. So, hmm. so the second part of the question was life settlements. Life settlements, yeah. Life settlements, as you may or may not know, if you could, if you would like to, by the way, watch a, a webinar on life settlements, you can do that. Wealthformula.com, look at investment opportunities and, and go, Watch that webinar, or you can go to a, a microsite that I created called hedgetheeconomy.com because that's exactly what you're doing. You are hedging the economy. But what they are is their life insurance uh, whole, or, or not whole, but permanent life insurance policies of octogenarians, typically, right? So you're, you're buying life insurance policies from people who don't need them or and or can't afford them anymore. Their alternative is to basically stop paying on them. They're going to get nothing out of it. Um, If they know enough to get their cash value, they'll ask their cash value. But more often than not, they just end up not, you know, they just end up running out of cash because the cash just pays the premium and then boom, it's dead. It's really sad. Yeah. And we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of of like 90% of policies never pay out. Um, but 100% of people die. <clears throat> that's right. And so uh, the 90% of people, that's why insurance companies make so much freaking money, yeah, by the way. They are. Right? So here's what a life, so life settlements, just as a reminder, what you do is in, in, uh, in 1911, I think, it was 1911, 1914, one of those two, I can't remember which one, Supreme Court ruled that a life insurance policy is a true asset. It is an asset just the way an apartment building or a house or a piece of gold or whatever. It's a real asset. And if it's a real asset, it can be transferred to uh, another person. And um, and so if effectively what you do in, in life settlements is you buy, you give people who need money today, who would prefer to have money today rather than in the afterlife, you give them, you know, a big chunk of cash today, but it's still a discount compared to the death benefit that eventually it'll pay out once they die. So it's a win-win situation for the person selling the uh, selling the policy and for the investor. The only one who loses there is who? The insurance, insurance company, company, right? And if only 10% of these things go on to ever pay out, I don't have a tier for them. And to the point they had that, policy on their books while it was being paid. Right. They were making money on exactly. the capital sitting in their accounts. So. Well, anyway, yeah, the bottom line is, though, I think there's no reason to, that this is a beautiful situation if you want to, you know, uh, you know, talk about having a situation where you're helping people and, you know, not letting Wall Street uh, and the big, big insurance companies win the game all the time. So to your question about how best to invest in them. I do think a fund model is the best. And again, I think if you go to uh, hedgetheeconomy.com, you can get a sense for what I'm talking about. But there's a couple things that are important in this. And one is uh, diversity. This is an actuarial play. And um, the more actual, so typically, you know, you want to have each policy of multiple actuarial uh, studies on it. You want to take an average of that. And then you want to have multiple policies in, in, in a fund structure because that gives you diversity and then it actually makes the power of numbers even stronger. Um, so that's my preference. It's, that's my preference on how to invest in this asset class. There's a lot more detail, again, in that, in that webinar, um, which, which uh, you can go to hedgetheeconomy.com and check out. But that's, in a nutshell, I would say yes. I think you, you should have a fund at least, you know, you know, four to six policies in each each fund, so you're um, so you have some diversity. You also want to make sure that there is means by which um, there's a plan to actually pay the premiums. Because remember, you still got to pay the premiums, 
right? So you got to have a plan for escrow of premiums. And, you know, I think that the most important thing for this asset class in investing by far and away is transparency. And, um, and so that, that's, that's what I leave it. So Stephen, did you have any questions on that? I did. And, and it, it's not exactly in line with how do you get sure. into it? Once you're into it though, the exposures are what are seemingly, uh, as long as you pay the premium mm-hmm. and you're pretty much sure that the original policyholder is eventually going to pass away, you're going to get the death benefit. Yeah. So th- this is a this is a very good question because what are what are the risks? The biggest risks in reality are longevity, right? Right. And so, um, as a physician, I can tell you that right now there's no cure for death, right? And particularly when it comes to people who are already in their 80s and have multiple health problems, that's really not where life expectancy changes. It's usually it's baked in, right? It's our children, right? It's the kids who are being born today. The this generation of children who's literally being born right now, they're going to see you know life expectancies well into the hundreds. I I drew I believe that. But that's really not where you're at if you're already 85 and you got, you know, you've had two heart attacks and you still smoke, which the, literally is what some of these people look like. And the example in the webinar right. is a good one of right. they start listing the actuarial number of months left. Right, right. And that's what you're actually investing in. Right, right. Um, but um, what was your... Did, so was the it? question on that was, are there things that can happen yeah. so in, longevity? in the event of a death... Right. That could make it not pay out. So if theoretically, again, the risk, the biggest risk is longevity. Now, in reality, that's where transparency and 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 investing in in a very, you know, I guess, again, you got to know, like and trust who you're investing with. The right. group is you got to have referrals, all that business. Um, but really, the the other risks are, you know, again, not escrowing premiums. Right. Because if you can't pay for these things, guess what you're going to do? You're going to go back to investors and you're ask. You're going to ask for premiums. The other thing is, did you are these are these uh, life insurance policies actually paying out? Now, there is a statistic that there has never been a life insurance policy that did not pay out for uh, unless it was completely fraudulent. But the capital was there to pay it out, assuming it was it was legitimate. Right, yeah. right. There's so so even in the case of suicide, usually the insurance uh, policies, and I didn't know this, but I got an insurance producer's license, which Stephen, I know you're about to get. But the um, typically it's a two year window. After two years, if even if people kill themselves, it doesn't matter. The insurance companies have to pay out. Um, so there is, the, it's it's really difficult for them not to pay. The bigger challenges that these things come into is like, you know, was the transfer done properly? Mm-hmm. You know, is there family members who were not consulted and, and they were heirs and, and it was all in the this. estate and yeah. Right. And and you're an attorney, so you know you know all the issues regarding that. So the way you avoid those typically is that you only invest I I'll tell you the way I avoid them. The fund uh, that I invest in that I'm involved with uh, only buys them through what are called uh, life settlement brokers, uh, some major brokers that are are out there. And these brokers, what they do, they act basically as a they 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 do due diligence on all these things. By the time they get to the marketplace, they are clean, right? They've got like twenty one points of checkup. Whatever they do, typically they have, you know, they have families signing over any. Uh, potential, um, you know, acknowledgements or whatever that they have, that they know that this is happening. Um, and these are the same brokers that Berkshire Hathaway buys their policies from. So these are, um, you know, this is how you, this is how you buy stuff. I would highly, highly suggest you not even consider buying individual policies, um, you know, from people who are selling them. I just think it's fraught with danger. And I know actually of a couple people in uh, my investor group who have bought policies from individuals, um, and particularly one guy who writes a lot of books about uh, life settlements um, that have ended up not paying out. And they were because of a lot of these kinds of technical technicalities, you know, the dotting I's crossing T's, which you won't get into if you actually deal with a, you know, a real, a real group. 
Now, is the death benefit itself when it's it gets paid out tax free? No, no, so that's, it's not, and that's a, an important distinction. It is the original it's, death benefit is it's not tax free. Um, it is a it well it depends who you ask. Um, it can be considered, um, you know, it could be considered if you have an individual life settlement. Typically, it will be ordinary income. Now, if you're in a fund, that raises a lot more questions. And again, I'm not going to give an opinion here, but typically in a fund, you are not buying a, a policy anymore. You're buying a security. Right. So then the question becomes, if it's a security and you own a security, is that capital gains or is, you know, or is that ordinary income? That's a question for your accountant, Stefan. Hi, Buck. I have a question for you. My father is 57 years of age and has a 401k that was managed by his employer. He's on a self-employed track now, so I'm interested in investing his money in a better vehicle. He has approximately $27,000 in there. So can you please advise me where would be a good vehicle to put his money in? Thank you. Uh, okay. I'm going to assume that this means that he still is using the 401k, that, that it still needs to go into a retirement account. Um, in which case, um, I think the, so do you, are you understanding this question as? I, I think we need, we're missing a piece. Yeah. Well, let me try to answer a few different parts of this um, because I think, if the question is, um, he has, it's a self-directed 401k, is that the best vehicle for it? Um, I would refer you back to a couple episodes. Again, we had a really interesting uh, episode with Damian Lupo, who uh, introduced us to the concept of QRPs. Um, QRPs, um, uh, you can also go to wealthformula.com and, and, and get a copy of Damian's book. He's gonna, He'll send it to you, but... Really interesting concept. Um, in a nutshell, I, I won't go into the details cause, largely because I don't understand them and I don't have a uh, retirement account myself, so I don't take that much time to understand. But the big difference, uh, in my view, with this kind of account, a QRP versus a self-directed IRA, um, uh, is uh, the ability to you know self-direct and also have be able to not pay UBIT or um, UDFI on basically taxes on the leverage component of profit. So, for example, if you have a self-directed IRA, um, you can invest in real estate. But technically, if you have, uh, you know, a, a part of your profits that are made because of leverage, which hopefully you do, because, I mean, that's one of the beauties of real estate, right, is the leverage that you are supposed to pay uh, taxes on that leverage component. Now, if you use a QRP, you don't have to do that. That's why. Now, QRP is some kind of form of a self-directed 401k from what I understand, so he might be okay anyway. Now, if that's the question, that's the answer. Now, if the question is, what should he do with that money at this from the, from your father's standpoint, uh, boy, I, I, I would hesitate to even go down that um with you, Stefano, because it's just a you know loaded question, and I can't really give you investment advice. You know, uh, obviously, I'm a big fan of real estate. I do think you know there's there's notes, uh, there's some notes groups that I've talked about um, you know on the show frequently in the past that I think are 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 worthwhile considering. But gosh, if it's only twenty seven grand and it's your dad, I really don't want to give you advice on. On what to do, and also obviously depends on you know whether he's uh, accredited, accredited or not. Um, there's a million different things, but but hopefully, yeah. The, I was gonna say the takeaway is if he's accredited, which is a, mm-hmm. a first question. Then, the regardless of the things he could do, it sounds like it needs to stay qualified. I don't know. I mean, it depends on his. If he takes it out of the qualified fund, he'd pay taxes on that. Yeah, if he does, then just you know the QRP is the the thing to do. The thing to do, from what I understand, yeah, you know, I mean, again, everybody needs to, you know, do your own research. But um, 
you know, order Damien's book. Um, you can get that on wealthformula.com, but it's pretty compelling. And if I did have a, um, if I did have a, a retirement account, which I don't, I use, you know, wealth formula banking type uh, vehicles myself, uh, then I would, you know, I would absolutely consider a QRP, especially as a rollover uh, from from a traditional IRA, because even, by the way, the good news is if you have assets it, that you've invested already in a self-directed IRA and they're in real estate, you can roll them over into that QRP. So the beauty of that is you can still save yourself. Even if you've invested in something with your IRA, you can still save yourself um, uh, theoretically from paying taxes on the leverage component of your gains when they when they happen. So. Anything, any other questions follow up on that at all? I think uh, we need a little more information to know if we answered it. Yeah. So if we didn't, Stefano, ask uh, ask a follow-up on the next show. Well, let's see. That's, it looks like we uh, we covered some of the, the main calls here um, from the standpoint of uh, those who are calling into the show. And thank you for those. And Please, I do encourage people to go to wealthformula.com, go to SpeakPipe, and leave your questions there. Now we're going to move on with some of Stephen's questions. And this is good because I've asked Stephen to try to get caught up with a lot of the things that we talk about um, as part of you know Wealth Formula and the brand and, and that thing so he can be of service too. So Stephen, let's start your questions. Yeah, let's start off with, with Wealth Formula Banking. Um, yeah, as a as one of the key lines that is said repeatedly and, and seems to really present the value is that it's it's a replacement for a traditional bank account, not necessarily like your day to day checking account. Yeah. But how did you mean that in in terms of like is it instead of a savings account or because yeah. it's the idea of having access to your money, but it's an investment account. Just how did you mean that? You know, I don't really, it's funny because I don't really emphasize the bank account as much, even though we call it Wealth Formula Banking. I know others have, uh, you know, used the, it in that context more often. Um, the reason we call it banking is because, you know, let, let, let's put it in an example. What do you typically do when you, let's say you were just buying, a, let, let's say you were buying a rental house. You take you have money that's sitting there and it's making like, you know, 0.05% um, interest, which means you're losing, losing money, right? Because interest is, uh, Inflation. inflation's at about 2%. So you're losing money until you find something to put it in. Then you put it in and then you get, uh, say, say you put $100,000 in or something like that and, and you end up with a, you know, like a thousand dollars back a month. What do you do with that thousand dollars? Well, you typically would deposit back in your bank, only to get point zero five point zero five percent. Right. We just learned that lesson. Why right. would we do that? Right. But there's not a whole lot else you can do with it necessarily because you can't use that thousand dollars to go, you know, buy something else. So you're waiting to accumulate, and so so that's where this concept. Uh, began, I think, really being thought of is banking because here with Wealth Formula Banking, it's a type of insurance product that you know is is very clever, uh, and the insurance effectively becomes free after two years. Um, but here in this situation, what happens is from the get go, the cash value that you have is is growing at a compounding rate, typically between somewhere between five and five and a half percent, which is tax free. So that's probably the tax equivalent of what, maybe eight or nine percent. Yeah. So right away, that's better than zero point five percent. Okay, you're not losing money now. You're actually making money with that money sitting there. Okay, the next thing is you take this money and you use it. You borrow it from your account and you use that uh, now you use that for a down payment of a hundred thousand dollars like we did in the last example so there's two things that are different here first of all when we start getting our money back we're not putting it into something that is only paying us 
five or zero point five percent, we're putting something that is making us back five five and a half percent, right? The second thing here, and this is where the magic really is in my view, is that even though you borrowed the money uh, from your account, your 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 account is still growing as if that money was still there at a compounding rate. Because when the insurance company lends you that $100,000, they're using a different account. And that a different account is lending you that money at a simple rate. So you're taking, so you're growing at a compounding rate. You're borrowing at a simple rate. You're investing into something that then gives you cash flow. And you pay back your loan, which is just at a simple interest. And you replenish the money that's growing at a compounding rate. So this is this idea of keeping your powder dry for when you can put it into something that is well, it's attractive. just it's just smarter, right? I mean, I mean, just from uh, you know from every perspective, if, if you look at is it's keeping your powder dry, but it's also you know it's also uh, basically what it's allowing you to do is to double dip. You're investing your money in two places at the same time. Because you've got money growing at a compounding rate, even though you borrowed it, it's still growing at a compounding rate. And then you come back and you invest that into something else. Uh, and then you, you borrow it at a simple rate and invest in something else. So you've got the arbitrage of the compounding rate and simple rate. And then you have the cash flow. And then you have, you know, five and a half percent return instead of 0.5. So to me, this is one of those things. If you're a cash flow investor, um, this is why I I really do think that this this particular type of strategy is an absolute no brainer. And just as a reminder, you can look at the webinar we did at wealth uh, wealthformulabanking.com. So that's a, a good transition into the into the difference between wealth formula banking and Velocity Plus. Where in wealth formula banking, you actively are looking for things to invest your your money into, and that's why you're going to borrow against the account. But in Velocity Plus, you're not doing active investment. You've got a, a policy, and you're putting money in every year, and the bank is loaning you money to put in there as well. Mm-hmm. And that same concept, that far, is the same in both, correct? Um, it's different. It's very different. So the way I would think about um, the banking is it's if it, in the context of retirement accounts, Wealth formula banking would be much more like a self-directed IRA where you're investing in things, right? Um, in in the context of, of Velocity Plus, that's more of your traditional, we're going to invest, we're going to take our money and put it in ETFs and let it grow type of situation. So the value in, a, in Velocity Plus is much more that there's no downside. The, so Velocity Plus is a completely different, different product, product. Completely different product. It, it it's based again in insurance and its roots are in the high super high ultra net worth uh group and and that is um traditionally there's 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 something called premium finance uh, IULs and basically what you do is you you have um the insurance company has an options play and the details of that is beyond the anything that I'll be able to explain on this podcast. But effectively, what they do is they give you the opportunity to invest in um, an index that is tracking the S&P 500, and you can take up to 12 to 13% of the upside. But if the market crashes, uh, it goes down 20 or 30%, you don't have to participate in that crash, okay? And the reason you don't is because it's an options play on their side. And to the extent that that sounds great, right, 12 and 13%, you don't have to worry about the downside, that's, that's cool. But, you know, the S&P 500 has an average of conservatively 7, 7%. Of course, in our world, we don't really care what it is because we know at any time it can go down 20 or 30%, and that's why we stay away from it. But what if you don't have to worry about it crashing? Then it becomes attractive. And you know what's even more attractive is if you know the the average over historic historically has been seven or eight percent in the S and P S and P five hundred. I think it's probably higher than that, but let's say it's seven or eight percent. Seven percent 
uh, S&P 500 with leverage becomes quite a bit more than 7%. So what Velocity Plus does is give you typically three to one leverage. So it, then you're looking at that return uh, that you get um, from the policy, from the S&P 500, if it's 7%, that is the equivalent of a cap rate in real estate, right? So it's a, like a seven cap, and then you leverage it to make it yield more. So for example, if you use three to one leverage on seven, an internal rate of return of seven, you actually end up close to 20%, which is which becomes very attractive. Um, and again, the downside the downside protection is really what is appealing to me because I know there's going to be a correction. You know there's going to be a correction. Everybody knows there's going to be a correction. We just don't know when. We don't know when. Um, but when there is, the chances of the next year being gangbusters is really high. You know, a funny thing that I um, that I heard, which I thought was interesting, is, you know, everybody's talking about how, you know, the first year of Trump's... Um, uh, stock market and, and, and the Dow Jones went up by so much, et cetera. If you look over the first 12 months of the Obama administration, it actually went up more than it did the first 12 months of, of the Trump administration. And believe me, that that is this is not a political comment whatsoever. It's a comment on the fact that that during Obama's first 12 months, we were recovering from the worst, probably the worst outside of the Great Depression uh, economic collapse We've seen there certainly, was nothing but upside. Certainly since the depression. Right, right. Um, so, so the point being that if you can avoid one year like that and then have gangbuster years afterwards, that you can potentially make a lot of money. The one last thing I'll point out there is for those of you, there is a handful of you who are um, what qualify as sort of ultra high net worth. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's such a wishy-washy word, but basically it's like somewhere... And that, you know, maybe you're at least $5 million, uh, in, in in net worth. If you're in that category, you can get even more leverage. And that's where it gets kind of crazy. And um, where a lot of uh, ultra high net worth people that I know are using the, these tools. And that's where I learned them from. Uh, but I'll tell you, you know, the three to one uh, leverage itself is very attractive. And that one's available to pretty much anybody who makes you know, at least $100,000 a year combined family-wise. So, well, great. Any, any last uh, No, this was, this was great. Good. All right, everyone. Hopefully that was helpful to you. And uh, that's, uh, that's all I got. And um, we'll be right back. Uh, welcome back to the show, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Now, remember, if you want to have your questions featured on the next uh, Ask Buck show, go to wealthformula.com. And ask your questions via SpeakPipe or just send me an email at bucketwealthformula.com or, I don't know, leave, leave, uh, leave a message there. But I like the, the uh, questions that actually come up and people record them. It's, it's more fun that way. So make sure you do that. Um, also, please remember to check out my new crypto podcast, Consensus Network, um, and subscribe to it. If you're interested in crypto, you're going to uh, love this and you're going to really... Um, and even if you don't know anything about crypto, this is where you should go to learn. Listen to the first episode. And if you have no idea why anybody's excited about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, that first episode will at least explain why. You may not get excited yourself, but you will understand why others might be. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Uh, this is Buck Jeffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.
Uh, welcome back to the show, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Now, remember, if you want to have your questions featured on the next uh, Ask Buck show, go to wealthformula.com and ask your questions via SpeakPipe or just send me an email at bucketwealthformula.com or, I don't know, leave leave a, leave a message there. But I like the the uh, questions that actually come up and people record them. It's, it's more fun that way. So make sure you do that. Um, also, please remember to check out my new crypto podcast, Consensus Network. Um, and subscribe to it. If you're interested in crypto, you're going to uh, love this and you're going to really, um, and even if you don't know anything about crypto, this is where you should go to learn. Listen to the first episode. And if you have no idea why anybody's excited about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, that first episode will at least explain why. You may not get excited yourself, but you will understand why others might be. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Uh, this is Buck Joffrey signing off. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.